Hello, and welcome to Tales from Wisteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. We're the boyfriends. I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And today we're going to be reviewing Desperate Housewives, Season 3, Episode 14, I Remember That. Do you? Uh, it's just the title of the... Oh, okay. It's the title of the episode. Oh, okay then. Yeah. My mistake, sorry. So in this episode, I'm going to be doing the, tr- the, uh, the breakdown of the episode, and Joel's going to be doing the trivia and fun facts and stuff. So, um... Do you have anything to start us off with? I do. I have quite a lot. So just FYI, it's going to be a big trivia. Oh, brilliant. Um, I just get section. to sit back for a bit then. You get to sit back and relax and listen to me chat for a little bit. Um, so just a content warning for you guys. This episode continues on from the previous episode in discussing themes of sexual assault and rape. So if that is triggering for anyone, then I suggest listening to the trivia because it's helpful. And then potentially skipping the first maybe five, ten minutes of the podcast yes, before things start to mellow out again. Proceed with caution. Yes. So let's get started on the lighthearted trivia-ness. So the episode was written by John Pardee and Joey Murphy and directed by David Warren. It aired two days before B's 12th birthday on February the 11th, 2007. And the episode had 18.1 million views on its original airing. The episode makes heavy use of Marsha Cross's stunt double in all of the scenes that she had to stand, like in the the shot with the ladder, because Marsha was pregnant at the time and was on bed rest. Yeah, super pregnant. Yeah. The episode title, I Remember That, is a song taken from the Stephen Sondheim musical, Saturday Night. Uh, The French translates to An Essential Detail, and the French-Canadian translates to Remember the Past. And then the German translates to Deathly Past, and Hungarian is Memory Traces. Oh, definitely passed. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit Harry Potter, isn't it? (laughs) Kathleen York, who plays Monique, is an American actress, screenwriter, and Oscar-nominated singer-songwriter recording artist. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song for In the Deep from the 2004 film Crash, which I've never seen, but I remember seeing advertisements and stuff. I've never actually seen it. I think I was a bit too young to appreciate, like, adult looking films like that at that age. Yeah. I was only 12. Uh, Recurring roles for uh, Kathleen York include in How to Get Away with Murder, Jane the Virgin, Outcast, Murder One, The O.C., and obviously Desperate Housewives. And guest star appearances include True Blood, Curb Your Enthusiasm, All Rise, Longmire, House, and Revenge. So she's been in quite a bit. And I've probably seen her in nothing. (laughs) You would have seen her in um, Jane the Virgin, I imagine. I watched the first um, season and a half. Oh, okay, maybe not, then I guess it depends. Her other music credits include the main theme song for the Sony picture, Seven Pounds, which I think is the one with Will Smith. I have never heard of it. You've never heard of Seven Pounds? It's got Will Smith in. I I think I've seen it once. I don't really remember much of it. Uh, The Felicity Huffman indie, Tammy's Always Dying, which came out in 2019, as well as featured song placements in American Idol, Nip Tuck, CSI New York, and more, and her EP, Have No Fear, was released independently in 2008. Hmm. Finally... This is the last little bit of trivia. Gets a little bit deep here. So it is estimated that one in seven males by the age of 18 will have been the victim of some form of sexualized violence. One in seven? One in seven. An estimated 91% of victims of rape and sexual assault are female and 9% are male. Rape Crisis England and Wales is the umbrella body for a network of independent rape crisis centers. And we will put the link in the description of the podcast if you need it. But it is www.rapecrisis.org.uk. All of their member centres provide specialist support and services for victims and survivors of sexual violence. Rape Crisis believes that all victims and survivors deserve specialist support. 
They work in partnership with organisations that represent men and boys to lobby government for adequate, sustained funding for specialist services for all victims and survivors. Over half their member rape crisis centres provide specific support services for men and boys who have experienced sexual violence as a child or as an adult or both. Some can also offer support for male partners, friends and supporters of sexual violence survivors. Their website has a link to all of their centres and although not all centres have the facilities to help male victims, they will be able to advise other local places to you that do offer support. They also provide a number for SafeLine, which are the National Male Survivors Helpline on 0808 800 5005 and they also provide emotional support via telephone, text and email. Their website also provides information on self-help guides for victims. It can also provide help for victims of childhood sexual abuse and uh, an issue that is very near to me which is domestic violence and domestic violence is also an issue that men face on a daily basis that many find too embarrassing or shameful to talk about. Mm. There are many websites that talk about this and provide resources to help another one being www.survivorsuk.org which also work with male, non-binary and transgender victims so again we will put the links to those websites in there but if you have suffered with this or are struggling with this or know someone that is struggling with this and you're not quite sure how to help them or talk to them about it, then there are resources out there for you to speak to someone and get the help that is out there that you may need. Yes, one in seven is um, surprisingly high. An alarming number. By the age of 18 as well. One in seven by the age of 18. And the sad thing is that because it's such an untalked about thing with men, especially, it's probably not an accurate figure at all no probably not in reality um, and so just what they can estimate i got all of that information from rape crisis and survivorsuk.org but there are so many so many websites and if i i could have spent hours going into a massive massive deep dive but that's just some some general information so that was quite a long trivia but with the topics that we've been discussing in the podcast recently i felt like it was quite necessary yeah and hopefully it will help someone out yes so previously ian's wife jane passed away Gabby decided to be friends with Zach. Mike was arrested for Monique's murder. Bree found a bag of teeth in Alma's house. And finally, Gloria and Alma arranged for Alma to sexually assault Orson to get her pregnant. So, moving on to today's episode. Yes. <laughs> for our intro, it's focused on Mike, and it's now been two months since Mike woke up from his coma, and he's starting to remember things. And we get this scene where he's um, getting some hypnotherapy from a hypnotherapist, and then he's just trying to remember what happened that night with Monique. So, at first, he starts to remember little things, like the first time he was he was on Wisteria Lane, when he met his neighbours, when he first heard Susan laugh, which I thought was really cute. It was really cute, but these flashbacks are awkward. And, um, yeah, you might have noticed that there's a bit of awkward weird strangeness, and I think that might be because it's meant to be almost dreamlike. Yeah. It's sort of like, he's not in a memory, but he's he's like having an out-of-body experience where he's inside of the memory yeah if you know like he's watching the memory no but it's just like that tom and lynette one with lynette just waving in the doorway like a creep and then i had to rewind it because i thought she was holding an urn yeah it's a bottle of wine actually i rewound it double checked but i was just like why's the bitch holding an urn standing in his doorway (laughs) it was weird though wasn't it i think that's probably how he remembers them looking but they probably weren't looking like that yeah but i love a dream sequence Oh, you always complain about dream sequences. I would complain when they're too pointless. When they're pointless. (laughs) Or when they feel unusually badly acted. Sorry, Coughlin and Mary Alice. Mm, But at least in this dream sequence, it's resolving things. There's a reason behind this dream sequence. We've got Mike visiting a hypnotherapist. And they, they planted a little bit of Mike and Susan in there. Yeah. 
Don't forget, we didn't know it's that. (laughs) So he's having his therapy and we finally get into the memory from when he goes to Monique's house. You know, when she's like, I thought you'd never show up in her lingerie. And it turns out that he was there just to fix the sink. (laughs) Yeah, we get the story now, at least from Mike's perspective. And we all know Mike didn't kill Monique. No, of course not. So he's fixing the sink. She's proper trying it on. And he's either oblivious or uncomfortable. Mm. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to fix the sink, love. But he's missing something and he has to go out and get um, get some sort of tool or something for the sink to fix it. And when he comes back, he sees someone's yellow gloved, like washing lamp gloves hands go onto the kitchen counter. But before the person reveals themselves, he wakes up and oh. uh, he can't remember. It's such a stressful dream. And he's like, I'm, I, I'm always so close to seeing the person. Mm. But he can never get there. The question here is, is Monique actually worth all this fuss? <laughs> because like all this drama with Orson and then Harvey Bigsby and all this drama with Mike like she, Monique even knows that Mike is seeing someone she there flirts with him and she's like I thought you'd never get here and then she flirts with him and Mike's like no I'm seeing someone which we can assume is Susan but she still doesn't stop flirting I think it's um it's okay to say that her and Orson probably wouldn't have worked out no, I don't think Aaron Orson would have worked out. No. But I also, I wonder if there's any significance to the bowl of just lemons on Monique's kitchen island. Yeah, why do you need that many lemons? She's just got a bowl full of lemons. <laughs> Maybe she cooks a lot of tropical dishes. Maybe. And drinks a lot of cocktails with lemon slices. Maybe she just likes lemon cake. It's just a lot of lemons. It was an awful lot. Do you lot. need that many lemons? No, it was very unnecessary. You could have like added some different fruit in there, mixed it up a little bit. Right, have an like, orange. Have it like some cut, throw some more colour in there so it's not just yellow. We then cut to our title sequence. And after that, we go to Brie. So it's six o'clock in the morning and Brie's wondering whether or not she should let Orson sleep and get some rest or wake him up so that they can talk about what just happened. So she decides to do the most rational thing possible and she throws a glass of water in his face. Yeah. Which wakes him up yeah and also creates continuity error well because he's dry because of how wet his shirt is first it's not very wet and then suddenly it's drenched (laughs) right if you're gonna have a gag where someone throws water in someone's face follow it through guys yeah so she talks to him about the assault and how gloria helped but orson has absolutely no memory of this he also takes this news extremely well even making jokes about their marriage so he's clearly not bothered but he says that they can't go to the police about it I mean, this scene has possibly one of the most iconic Desperate Housewives lines. What about the marriage? No, about, um, she raped you and your mother helped. That's just, I don't know why that line has stuck out with everyone, but I feel like that that line really sticks. (laughs) Because it really shows you how deranged Gloria is. And Alma. And just, guys, do you remember in the last episode when I said the whole sexual assault thing would be brought up this episode and they're never heard of again? This is it. Yeah. Where it's literally brought up for the sake of 30 seconds of one scene or however long it is, and then it's never really mentioned again. He jokes about it, they move on. Yeah. He jokes about it, Brie jokes about it. It's crazy. It's And unrealistic. And a little bit um, uncomfortable. But like, he's really going there. Brie questions why they shouldn't call the police, and this is when Orson finally tells her that it's time that she learnt about the night that Monique died. Dan lays all his cards out on the the table and hopes for the best. Mm Mm-hmm. We then move on to Susan, and she's looking for funeral clothes with the help of Julie for Jane's funeral. And Julie wonders why she wants to go at all. Mm. She tells Julie that she's really excited to finally be introduced as Ian's girlfriend now that Jane's dead, (laughs) and not to just be that, you know, that adulterous couple, before finally setting on a wedding dress. A wedding dress? A funeral dress. 
that is modest and sad looking <laughs> and doesn't show off her boobs. Girls should rock up in a wedding dress. That's what I do. <laughs> Why are you wearing a wedding dress? If there was an emergency. What was the emergency? I look really good in white. <laughs> Isn't that the office? Yeah. <laughs> it's the sweet thing what Susan wants to do. Like, it's sweet that she wants to go to the funeral and be there for Ian. But we all know this won't end well, right? Like, come on, guys. We all know it. Well, no, it's Susan. <laughs> it's Susan. She tries to do these sweet things for people and it just ends up making things so much worse. And I say the best thing for Susan, the best thing she can do for Ian today is stay in bed and only leave to pee and grab a snack. That's the best thing that she can do. Love that they called out that she's like, I need to get more sad clothes. Yeah. Because she has a lot of pink and green and I have to get some more depressing clothing. She just has a lot of colour in her wardrobe. Nothing wrong with it. And apparently some very booby black dresses. Very booby black dresses. (laughs) And there's Julie sitting there in her all green tracksuit. Yeah. Again with the green. Julie. I mean, Gabby would never... I mean, Gabby would. But not that. I don't know. That's probably one of Gabby's tracksuits. But it just doesn't look the same. We've already established that Gabby likes Julie's clothing. So I imagine it goes both ways. Mm. I imagine they they swap clothing with each other. Speaking of Gabby, Zach is out with Gabby trying to find something to buy her for her 31st birthday. But Gabby isn't having any of it. She finds it sad because she's a single woman in her 30s and turns away all of Zach's gift offers before telling him to buy her a liquid soap dispenser while she sulks on a mattress in the mattress department. Gabby, if you don't pick up on all these red flags coming from Zach right now, you in danger, girl. And she don't. No, she really doesn't. She's just so... I love how she's become so reliant on Zach so suddenly. She's had that one day with Zach where she was like, oh my god, I really had so much fun. And now all of a sudden she's reliant upon him and that's all he needed. Also, Zach, I think the minute that she's like, oh, you can get me a liquid soap dispenser, you should know it's not going to go anywhere. Well, he should have realised it wasn't going to go anywhere in the previous episode where she told Zach that they would only be friends and emphasised the word friends. Yeah. A hot guy then starts looking at the bed while she's on it and um, she decides to start flirting and asks about his wife. He says he doesn't have one, so she tells him to try the bed with her on it and makes some inappropriate sex joke, which he doesn't get. No, it's a really awkward flirting scene. I can be a little dense. Can we start over? He uh, he really doesn't get it. I mean, she nearly, she nearly walked away at one point. Yeah, she's like, nope, you've ruined it. Moment's over. <laughs> they decide to meet up again sometime before Zach comes along, and it turns out that the guy actually works for Zach, but Zach doesn't even know who he is. It's so disrespectful. He's at that level of richness. Yeah, and he's like, oh, sorry, do I know you? And he's like, oh, I'm Luke, I'm on your legal team. It's like when a previous queen from RuPaul's Drag Race meets up with Ru, and he's like, who are you? Right, sorry, was and it like, Lou, was it? Excuse me, but I won season three. <laughs> <laughs> so Orson has finally told Brie the truth about the night that Monique died, off camera. Yeah, off camera. So, um, blue balls. Mm. And Brie says that he needs to tell the police to help out Mike. She also says that if he doesn't fix this, then she will. So Orson agrees, because all of the women in his life are way more proactive than him. Andrew also overhears this conversation from outside of the room, and he looks pretty concerned. Right? Like, Andrew's listening, so does this mean he gets to do something? Like, is psychopath Andrew making a triumphant return? Oh, we'll have to wait and see. Like, oh my god. And also, if I was Brie, I'd be upset about what I've heard. But I'd be more upset at Orson for doing this because as Brie, it means I now have to go to Susan and admit that I was wrong and give Susan the apology after the shit that I pulled <laughs> with Susan. That would piss me off more. I'd be like, Orson, are you kidding me? Let me help you out there. Because in all fairness, she doesn't really need to return the apology. Because what Brie was saying was Orson didn't murder Monique. Mm. But it sounds, it, it looks and sounds like he did. 
I mean, he totally didn't. But because everything's off camera, the entire Brie and Orson storyline this episode is just like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, but I kind of like that for the time being. Yeah, it's kind of it's like the season one mystery vibes again. Yeah. It's interesting. It keeps us invested. Oh my God, who was it though? Was it Orson? Because, you know, how can we trust Orson now after the amount of times he's already lied? We can't. Is this genuinely the real story that he's told Brie? Or is it going to turn out that this isn't a real story? Especially considering that he clearly didn't tell Brie that he ran over Mike. Oh, yeah, he probably left that part out. Well, no, he definitely did, because Brie was just like, you have to exonerate Mike, you know, he's had such a horrible year, even if some lunatic ran him over, and Orson was like, yeah, it has been a tough year. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, Orson, why do you just tell her everything? Now it's your chance. Wouldn't it have been funny if Orson was like, hey, maybe he wasn't a lunatic, maybe he had good reason. <laughs> maybe we're really misunderstanding this hit-and-run driver. So Tom buys Porter, or Preston one of the twins, an ice cream, until Lynette snatches it out of his hand and says he can't have ice cream right before dinner, and Tom tells him she's the boss. So you can't. And uh, this is really not important for the rest of the scene, but I just wanted to point out because it was funny. I mean, Tom really is useless, isn't he? Right? Yeah, you can have some ice cream at 5.30. Right, he's like, bad husband, and I don't really want to say bad father, but, well, bad father. A bit of a dumb ass. Yeah, like, no wonder the twins act out like they do if Tom gives them everything they want when they want it. Right? It's a complete different dynamic with Lynette and Tom, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, they're heading inside when Edie comes over to Tom and asks him how the restaurant's doing, and Tom gives her a coupon for the opening, and Edie basically asks him if he can hire Austin to work at his restaurant. Tom doesn't want to, he's overheard some rumours, apparently Austin beat up some guy. Which is totally true. And Edie brings out the whole, oh, don't listen to rumours. Austin's been depressed and mopey ever since Julie dumped him. So Tom agrees to hire him. Edie then returns his coupon saying that he's checked out her butt enough times to know that she doesn't eat pizza. And he checks her out as she struts away. Mm. It's so nice to hear that Austin is depressed. Yeah, and it's nice to hear something about the Austin and Julie storyline. Because because we didn't hear that that's completely been ignored now for a couple of episodes. So it's nice to know that Julie did actually dump Austin. And it's nice to hear that he's depressed about it. Whereas every time we've seen Julie, she seems fine. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's great. Even though we've barely seen Julie either. Barely. But every time we have, she seems okay. She seems okay. I love that for her. Yeah. Fuck this guy. You know? Someone that literally took her virginity and is like her first serious boyfriend... And she's just rocking around. She's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I wonder if she's still friends with Danielle. Julie deserved better. Julie did deserve better. We need to see more Danielle, though, because I want to see what's going on with her. I want to see them fight. Who, Julie and Danielle? Yeah. Fight, yeah. Fist fight. Go on. Fight, fight, fight. Oh, I wonder who'd win. Danny seems a bit catty. I reckon she'd be a bit dirty about it. Danielle's dirty. I reckon Danielle will fight dirty, but I think Julie can hold her own. Julie's really clever, but I reckon she's got some sort of um, hidden strength in her. Yeah. She'll just lift her over her head and chuck her. She's not She-Hulk. Okay. I got a bit carried away. (laughs) Got a bit carried away. Here we are, like, trying to get two teenage girls to fight. Are we straight? (laughs) Are we straight men? No, because we didn't say that they have to fight in the mud or tear each other's clothes off or something. T-shirt contest. But the gist of the scene is that Tom's going to hire Austin in the restaurant. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's that's the point. <laughs> so Zach shows up at Gabby's house with flowers and to take her out for her birthday. Okay, let's just talk about this, right? It's Gabby's birthday. Mm. No one in this whole episode sees her other than Zach and the guy that she dates. And ironically enough, 
in the previous episode, I called out Susan for being a bad friend. She didn't even know when her birthday Because she was. got flowers and Susan was like, is it Gabby's birthday? And now next episode, it's Gabby's birthday. So maybe Susan, maybe I shouldn't have called Susan out. I think maybe I was incorrect. I was a little bit too harsh at the time because Susan could have easily just like mixed up her days or whatever. But you are right. For an episode centering around Gabby's birthday, why do none of her friends care? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Maybe they're all going to meet up and have a Pocono on the weekend. Maybe. celebrate it then Maybe. but I just thought I'd point it out because no yeah. one sees her on no her one birthday. sees this episode but anyway she's getting ready to go out on a date with Luke so she's kind of um, parring off Zach a little bit Zach seems pretty bothered by it and asks if he's really into her and Gabby says that he likes her in the mattress department so she hopes that she likes him in the mattress department what what <laughs> Zach doesn't find this very funny, and Gabby says, What? Friends say these things before closing the door on him. I mean, she could have thanked Zach for the flowers. Yeah. Did she not? No. Oh, that's rude. She just grabbed them and put them down, and she was just like, Well, Luke will be here in a minute, and that will kind of be a date. But again, with the silver, in my humble opinion, Gabby wears too much silver. I also think that Gabby hasn't gotten to that character growth moment where she appreciates gifts yet because she's so used to gifts all the time. That's true. So every time someone gives her flowers, she's just like, oh, great, more flowers, cool. Yeah. But you think she wears too much silver, did you I think say? she wears too much silver. That dress that she was wearing for that date with Luke looked like she was a Christmas chicken getting cooked in the oven, wrapped in some tinfoil to seal in the juices. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, girl. <laughs> but anyway, Zach seems pretty unhappy with this turn of events. Yeah, it wasn't what he was expecting. And I don't think Gabby's picking up on the face that he's put in when they're talking about the lawyer. Gabby doesn't really look at people. Like, she sees people, but she doesn't really see a person. She sees a meat sack with money. Yeah, there's the person is there, but she doesn't really register their emotions or what they're showing on their face, I've noticed. Not all the time, anyway. It's a work in progress for the girl. I guess to Gabby, sometimes people's emotions are uninteresting. Yeah. I mean, why would they be interesting to her? Unless they were her emotions. So in this next scene, Orson goes over to Alma's house where Gloria is also sitting in the kitchen and tells them that he's told Brie everything. So this is the first time that he's seen them following the uh, incident. And he's oddly chipper for someone who's approaching his rapists. He's so weird. So Gloria thinks that this is unwise, but Orson gloats about how his marriage didn't end and that he faced all of his fears. So he thanks them and says goodbye. Alma beckons him to wait, saying that she could be carrying his child, but Orson basically says, well, fuck them kids, and he's yeah. going to stay with Bree. Yeah. Also, he enters, and he's like, the whole coven's here, and can you really count two people as a coven? No, I think a coven needs to at least be free, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know. Like, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not important, but that's what I'm here for, to ask the really unimportant questions. The real questions. The real questions yeah. that people care about. Our listeners care about these things. <laughs> Like, he's just, he wakes up and Bree's like, oh, you know, you were sexually assaulted by your mother and your ex. And then he's just like, cool. And he brushes it off like it happens every other week. And then he just goes over and visits his rapist. If I was Bree, that would really concern me. Yeah. With that sort of attitude that he's taken. And I certainly wouldn't let him go over to Armour and Gloria's by himself again. Now that he's told them that he's opened up about everything, though, hopefully this is the last time he'll ever need to go over there. The last time they ever need to interact. Yeah, but last time he went over by himself, he ended up getting drugged. So if I was breathed, not allowed. I'm like, I'd be like, sorry, Orson, you're not going over there by yourself. What if he, like, walked out the front door and one of them spit-dyed him? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Thump. So yeah, I, I get your concern. I don't know, Alma's a bit silly. I imagine she would have like put her mouth on the tube and then like sucked in Act to on. blow out by accident. And she'd be like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or just put a net on him. <laughs> 
giant butterfly net. Ladies, move on. Also, Gloria, what's your problem? Brie was nice to you. Brie was nice to her. What is it about Alma that is worth doing all this? I don't know. See, again, I know I asked earlier if Monique was worth all this fuss. Is Alma worth all this fuss? Is Alma... Is it because Alma seems more moldable as a person than Brie? Yeah, because Alma's... Well, yeah, like you said, moldable. Alma is really easy to manipulate. I think that's what Glory really wants. Glory? Gloria. I'm just calling it Glory. <laughs> Sorry, we've been watching Buffy. Um, I think that's what Gloria wants. Someone that she can twist and mould. Yeah. And almost perfect for that. Yeah, because she's lost control of Orson, who she used to be able to twist and mould. And so now she needs a new person. Oh, well, I just we just solved my question like right away. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so Lynette is at the restaurant and she isn't happy with how Andrew mopped the floor. It's a real big deal. Apparently it isn't Brie Hodge clean, but Andrew says that her disappointment is very Brie Hodge. Yeah. Like, season one, Andrew would have called out Brie and then probably driven home drunk and killed someone else's mum. But season three, Andrew is grown up. This is yeah. a grown up Brie. Instead, he just makes a, a, a like, sassy gay comment. <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's totally my mum. Yeah, he's really coming into his home. Yeah. So she tells him to help her take out the trash. And they find Austin getting high in the back with the delivery guy who just runs off. He tries to say that he's he's got a really good reason and she's going to be super not mad at him because he's really depressed that Julie dumped him. But Lynette doesn't buy it and she fires him. Yeah, great scene. She does a, a, she does a sacking. It's a really good scene. Like I could have had this whole scene as a clip. Like if I could, I would have like had this whole scene as a clip. Like I know Austin's high, but how him and the delivery driver or delivery dude or whatever uh, didn't hear Lynette coming because she was talking to Andrew as she came through. That's very high energy. Know. Like, I just, honestly. And it was like, even Andrew tells Austin it's dumb. Yeah, like, Austin's like, like, that was pretty dumb. Yeah, he's like, that's pretty dumb, dude. And I was like, this is a kid that blackmailed his mother, accused her of sexual assault in a mall, slept with her sex-addicted boyfriend and lived on the streets. And when he tells you this isn't smart, <laughs> that's information that you need to take. <laughs> right? I'm glad C's not doing well. As I said yeah. earlier, fuck yeah. this kid. Yeah, I'm glad he got fired. So Alma and Gloria are conspiring with each other, and Alma is being super antsy. I don't even know how to describe it. She's just a bit all over the place, isn't she? Yeah, well... Gloria tells her that Austin is bound to be a bit touchy after what Alma did, and basically tells her to have a fucking drink. Which I thought was a bit odd, considering that you had a big hand in it, Gloria. <laughs> yeah, I know. And she's like, normally I don't say this to expectant mothers, but have a scotch. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but really, Gloria, we're going with the phrase, ravished him against his will. Right? You... <laughs> Let's just call a spade a spade, Gloria, okay? Can we just call it what it is? So Alma says that maybe she should just call the police on Orson, and this is when Gloria gets a great idea, and I love this bit. She <laughs> takes Alma upstairs into a dark room. She's like, follow me, I have a plan. So Alma follows her into the dark room. She seems a bit confused as to what they're going to do in here, and Gloria just does a walkout and locks her in the room. It's brilliant. She's like, oh, you didn't see what I saw last night. Come up here. And then Alma goes up to the attic, and she's like, there's not even a window here. <laughs> <laughs> so she locks her in the room. Alma bangs on the door and Gloria just tells her to calm down and she walks away. She, like does, a she does a walk off. Yeah, she like hobbles off. <laughs> like, I just, I don't get why Alma, like, I don't get why Gloria, sorry, is so determined to have Alma and Orson together. Like, I know Gloria says it's to save his soul, but all this trouble for a soul... It's not about the soul. It's about being able to control them. The girl is actually like, do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Bart sells his soul? 
and then he has to run around all of Springfield trying to find who owns it. Is this the episode where everyone, like, rows off with their souls yeah, at the yeah, end? Yeah, 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 except Bart or whatever. And, like, he can't go through the automatic doors. They're suddenly not opening for him and, and shit like that. She's acting like Bart Simpson, like, running around trying to get hold of Orson's soul. 100%. <laughs> but I just love the way that she's like, oh, my God, I am sick of this woman. She's just, I'm just going to lock her in a room for a bit. We'll lock the crazy in the room. Right. It's a little bit sadistic. I know we've seen Gloria, like, do some messed up stuff. I was going to say, this is sadistic? All she did was lock in a room. Yeah, but it's like, it's an expectant mother, and she's literally just like, oh, just shut up and get in the attic. <laughs> Don't make me get the jump rope. I'm just wondering what Orson's childhood was like after that. Yeah. Jesus. Mm. Well, actually, spoiler alert, we get a little bit of Orson's childhood next episode. Oh, exciting. So we get a little bit of that to look forward to. We can see a little bit of it. Susan shows up to Jane's funeral and she sits down to sort her makeup when she overhears a conversation with Ian and his childhood friend Lynn. Lynn tells him that Jane used to joke about how if she died, maybe Lynn could straighten him out and maybe get him to pick up his socks, and she starts flirting with him. She tells him that he can come over to us any time before walking away to take her seat, and Susan decides to trip her up a little bit, telling her, oops, watch yourself. Amazing. <laughs> like, Jane's friend is really messy. Oh my god. Like, this is, it, I, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is real shitty. It's really, sh- like, this is messy as in, like, girl, think about your life choices. Hitting on your dead friend's widow at your dead friend's funeral. Jane had some interesting friends. Right? One of them was bitching about her on her deathbed, the other one's trying to screw her husband at the funeral. Like, what the hell, Jane? Yeah, Erica was like, oh, our, our friendship was based on gossip, and then you got... Lynn over here. Yeah, honestly, it's it's really uncomfortable to watch. Poor Ian. But, yeah, Susan ain't having it. Susan's no. like, oh, you come for my man. Also calling out that really bad editing for the mirror <laughs> that Susan was looking at <laughs> to, like, see the reflection of whatever, Lynn, whatever her name is. Lynn, yeah. Um, so calling that out, that was terrible. I love seeing Susan like this, though. Sassy. A little sassy, like, jealous annoyed susan i'm loving that well i'm sorry but if i was susan i would be behaving this way too (laughs) not so much because you know i feel threatened like ian would jump to lynn but just for the sheer audacity of the fact that you're flirting with this man at his wife's funeral right trash like honest to god trash take her out yeah put her in a sack and take her out and beat her with a stick just as a thought Mike and Carlos are hanging out outside and they're drinking some beers and mike has told carlos about everything and i love this they're friends now yeah they decide that the killer must be the yellow gloves guy who he keeps seeing in his dreams slash uh, hypno memory things. And Carlos convinces Mike that he's made great progress so far. So he'll remember who the murderer is in no time and they'll call the cops on him. It'll be a happy ending. Orson then says hi from behind as he takes out some trash. Trash. Which was, um, I spotted that. Mm-hmm. And I, Don't worry, you'll remember who the murderer is any time. And there's Orson like, hey, <laughs> waving his hand. He should have been wearing yellow marigolds. Like, it's just to make it really... I was just saying that. And then Mike just, like, says high waves and doesn't pick up on it. That would have been funny. What are your thoughts on hypnotherapy? I don't really have any thoughts on hypnotherapy. I hope it works. Do you believe it works? Well, probably. I mean, it's just unlocking parts of your brain which have been shut off, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it works. I don't know. I haven't done any research on it. No. Maybe next week. No. Why? What are yours? Oh, I don't know. My my mum used hypnotherapy to quit smoking, and it worked for her. Oh, I thought you specifically meant this kind of hypnotherapy. No, I just mean like hypnotherapy in general. Do you believe that it is a benefit? Do you believe it's for quacks? Like, oh, um, I believe that even if it has just a placebo effect, then good enough. Mm. I believe that hypnotherapy works if you want it to work. 
Yeah. If you go in there with the mentality of, oh, this is dumb, like, it's not going to work, then it won't because your mind isn't prepped in that way. So back at the funeral, Ian's friend Lynn is being a total cow and talking to her friend about how lonely Ian's been and how she's going to make a move. Susan intervenes and tells her that maybe their conversation's a little bit inappropriate for Jane's funeral. Lynn says that if she wants to help out Ian with his loneliness, then there isn't really anything that Susan can do about it. And this is when Susan tells her to to save you some embarrassment, that Ian is actually seeing someone. Susan won't say who, so Lynn doesn't believe her. And Susan admits that it's her. How Susan hasn't learnt by now that shit like this is what gets her into trouble, I don't know. Like, she can, she's seen from the previous communication between Ian and Lynn that he is not interested right. in Lynn. So why would you go out of your way to bring the attention onto you? Susan just hates the attention being on anyone else. Sue, just leave well enough alone. She comes in with, like, her sunglasses on and her hat, and she's like, oh, I just want to keep a low profile. She might as well have just stood up there, like, naked and had Ian bang her from behind. She would have been less noticeable if she had painted herself green, frankly. Yeah, like, Ian's clearly not interested in this day player, so let her just do her checking out of Ian and call it a day. Like, it really doesn't matter. But also, this woman is, as I said previously, being very disrespectful. But just for the idea that a spaghetti strap will work on anyone. Right. Like, what are you, five, Lynn? Oh, well, that shoulder be wearing a spaghetti strap and Chanel number five. Ugh, basic. I mean, you said you've grown up with Ian. Surely you know him better than this. A spaghetti. Oh, spaghetti straps are horrible. I'm sorry. I hate them so much. Yeah, he's. you've got a real thing about them, huh? I hate spaghetti straps. <laughs> they just look terrible. I'd rather no strap at all. So in this next scene, Tom is having a meeting with all of his staff. And then Lynette shows up. And I also thought it was a bit weird that he was having a meeting with his staff before Lynette had showed up in the first place. But- That's true. <laughs> That's really true. But anyway, he's having this meeting with all the staff, all the kids. And she's kind of wondering why Austin is there at all after Lynette fired him. Mm. He tells her that Tom rehired him. And they have a bit of a disagreement until Tom tells her to follow him into the other room. Where he basically starts to say that, well, she has a go at him for rehiring him. But Tom says it was a business deal. And I really love this bit. He was like, I didn't notice. Like, I had no idea. But some girls told me that he's hot. And I was like, really, Tom? Are you that dense? Tom's like, I I didn't realise this teenager was hot. But some girls told me this teenager was hot. (laughs) Okay, look. Heterosexual men. I get it. You're heterosexual. But anyone can spot a hot guy, right? Yeah. Just like anyone can spot... Anyone that's hot is spottable. Yes. Let's not pretend. So so he's all like, oh, well, I've been told that Austin's quite hot. So he'll attract all the girls and he'll attract half of the choir boys. And also his aunt Edie will give out our menu to her clients. Choir boys. Right. Tom didn't say that. He did. No, he did he not. He said half the boys on the choir. Oh my God, I did not pick that up. <laughs> if that is genuinely true, I'm going to have to rewatch that. Lynette is fine with it after she's heard everything, but she wishes that he had told her before rehiring him as she is the manager, and Tom then tells her that, well, he's the boss, so he gets rank, so he pulls the rank card on her, Um, which she doesn't like, and Tom points out that, well, he basically hands in his balls at home, and then she's in charge. It's all to do with balls again. Yeah. There's a lot of talk of balls with Tom. He's obsessed with the balls. For someone that's a heterosexual man, he's obsessed with balls. So... They decide to make a little show of this in front of all of the staff to make it clear he's the boss. And we have a clip for this. Yes. I don't care if you think you know what's best. You don't. I do because I'm the boss. What I say goes. You're not to give it to me. 
So when I make a decision, it stays made. You got that, Lynette? Yes, sir. Okay, that's enough. Just one more. And if I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. But I probably won't because I'm the boss. Are we clear? Seriously, stop or I will hurt you. Okay, I made my point. Anybody needs me, I'll be in the back drinking a beer. <laughs> my God, honestly. <laughs> I'm just wondering, how was this big show in front of all of the other stuff a good idea? Because they're already going to think that they can go over Lynette's head to go to Tom mm. because he rehired Austin anyway. And now he just shows her up and gives her a good old disciplinary right in front of everyone. Like, and I... it kind of undermines her role. Yeah. So they're probably going to think they can just walk all over her. Just I like her kids. I would not have let Tom do that. No. I'm not having him humiliate me in front of like the staff just because he doesn't have the authority within himself already. So he feels like he has to assert it. Like, the only place he get, a man can yell at me is in the bedroom, honey. <laughs> That's the only place. To be honest, I thought their dynamic was a bit better the first time because he was coming across as the fun boss and she was coming across as the strict manager. So mm. you already had the good cop, bad cop dynamic. Yeah. Whereas now you've just made Lynette the one that can be walked all over and you can go over her head anyway. And then you've got big man Tom. <laughs> yeah, like just they're both messy in this scene. And like I know Lynette's probably feeling very emasculated when she comes back in with the whole I fired him and now you've really hired him behind his back. But surely talking about the fact that you fired Austin and Tom's hired him back and the reason why Austin was fired in the first place in front of all of the staff at a staff meeting is incredibly unprofessional. Yeah. So, first is that, Lynette. That was messy. And Tom. And Tom, Lynette is still your fucking manager. So, communication is still... Still has to be had. And I would have divorced his ass years ago if I was Lynette. Because we have seen time and time again, Tom is bad at communication. And that's the last that we see of Lynette for today, guys. Is it really? I think so. Oh, damn. So, Gabby is on her date with Luke. And they're eating some soup. When Gabby starts to flirt with him by saying that he should save some room for dessert which he doesn't pick up on. Mm. So Gabby pretty much spells it out for him, saying, finish the soup and get naked. Yeah. One of the other lawyers of Zach's then randomly shows up to the door for some emergency contract sign-in. So Gabby says that she'll go open some wine while they do that. And when he opens the file, he sees a piece of paper that says, Gabby is mine, and if you sleep with her, you're fired. And the other lawyer says, Mr. Young wants to make sure you understood that last part. And Luke agrees. Americans have such a fucked up view of work. I would be pissed if I was Gabby. Like, ruining a date just to sign some contracts. Bitch, you can wait until tomorrow. Yeah, right? I mean, is it really that important? Mm. Is it? Is it really? Such a messed up view of work. The work-life balance. Yes, yeah. thank you, yeah. Home-work-life balance. It's all out of whack. Yeah. And plus, excuse me, fire me. Just fire me. Do you know what? Because I can get a new job and there is only one Gabby. But also, fire me, get me my severance pay, and I will sue. Yeah. And I'm keeping that piece of paper. That's evidence. So I would, yeah, if I was Luke, I'd literally be like, you know what, fire me. There's only one Gabby. I'll find a new job. I'll make new friends. <laughs> the only problem is that Zach is so rich, Luke probably wouldn't win. Yeah. No, Luke would not win. Although if Luke did win, he'd get some money. I mean, it wouldn't really affect Zach at all, but at least he'd get some money out of it. No. Back at Jane's funeral, Lynn has gone up to share some loving words about Jane. <laughs> she talks about how close they were and how they were like sisters until she decides to announce to the whole room that Ian wasn't actually so lonely during Jane's coma time after all and then calls out Susan as she tries to sneak away. She tells Susan to say hello to everyone who all turn around to have a good harsh old look at Susan and Susan awkwardly says hi and sits back down. She tries to like Oh, I think she leave. gets up to leave. She gets up yeah. to leave and she's trying to get out of the row and then the lady at the end's got some sort of 
one of those things that connects to your nose or something and she gets caught in the wire oxygen tank oh yeah it's not like susan was standing up because lynn had mentioned her name so she's like oh hi (laughs) she's trying she's trying to get out of there the minute lynn walks up she's like oh i mean there's petty and then there's pathetic like has she forgotten that she's at a funeral it's pathetic like this is completely pathetic frankly lynn just really embarrassed herself yeah like a complete embarrassment Oh, we haven't really mentioned it, but Susan looks really good. Susan does look really good. She looked really great when she walked in with the hat and the sunglasses. And she's oh, yeah. like, oh, don't look at me. <laughs> it's really the hat that does the outfit. I really yeah. love the hat that she's I like, wearing. I love the hat. So yeah, good good job. Mm-hmm. Um, Costume department. Yeah, really good. Good work there. We cut back to Gabby. Well, the date's a bit awkward. Luke is basically just scoffing down his dessert. And Gabby thinks that he's doing this so that they can get to the sex quicker. But Luke says that he's got to go back to the job or that his job is on his line. No, the job is on the line. He then goes to leave, but Gabby starts trying to kiss him and undo his shirt buttons. And Zach, who is watching from the car, sees all of this and he calls up Luke and asks what the hell he's doing. Luke tries to sort of subtly explain what's happening without alerting Gabby to what's going on. Mm. And Zach tells him exactly what he needs to say. After the call, Luke goes to leave and Gabby asks what the problem is, to which he says he just isn't attracted to her and she's too old for him and he's only into women in their 20s. Oh. This, <laughs> this results in her throwing him out and giving him a good old kick, which Zach looks pretty pleased with. Yeah. Like, Zach knows exactly where to hit Gabby where it hurts. This is the problem. He's been listening to her as a friend. Yeah. And now he's using all of her insecurities... Against her. Against her for his own gain. Yeah. That's not very friend-like, Zach. No, it's not very friend-like. That was horrible. Bless her. She's been depressed about being 31 all day. I mean, I would be exactly the same. I mean, I'm already feeling depressed about turning 30 next year. (laughs) It's like next year. I'm literally going to be 30 next year. Like 14 months. Well, calm down. You're not even 29 yet. I know. 14 months, guys. (laughs) I'm 30. What the hell? I mean, Zach and Luke, what a bunch of bastards. Right? Men are pigs. Men are pigs. Brie is taking out the trash when she sees a ladder outside with a bag hanging from one of the highest steps. The same bag that the teeth were in. So logic just overcomes her. She gets overcome with logical ideas. So she climbs the ladder to retrieve the teeth not knowing that one of the steps is actually broken, and it breaks as she climbs the ladder and she falls to the ground. Orson and Andrew then run out when they hear her scream and find her unconscious on the ground. When Andrew investigates the teeth bag, all he finds is marbles. Maybe she wanted to play a game of marbles. What the hell, Brie? Why on earth would you climb the ladder? I call shade on this entire scene. This scene makes zero sense. Who set this up? And how? Because Alma's locked in the attic and Gloria can barely walk five steps without keeling over. So how she managed to put a ladder up, tie the marbles on it, saw through one of the rungs of the ladder. Well, you, you do that before you put the ladder up. Well, yeah, I know, but how Gloria is able to do that? In all fairness, maybe the ladder was already, bro- already broken. It's, I mean, pro- it's probably not that hard to get a ladder up. But my problem is, why on earth did Brie climb it? I don't know. It looked dodgy. It did look dodgy. There's literally that bag that the teeth were in at the top of the ladder. Why would you climb it? It's clearly asking for you to climb it. And um, the fact that it was kind of just a ladder that leaves to nowhere, it's just up against the side of the house. It might as well have said climb me, and she probably still would have done it. But that was definitely not already broken before she climbed it. Someone had sort like had properly like sawn through that rung. Is she stupid? Yes. Because even if that wasn't broken, you would just... the way that it was placed, you would suspect that you start climbing that ladder and someone's going to come out and push it. Mm. I just can't believe that Gloria or Alma 
obviously Gloria, had the idea to do this and it actually got followed through with and it worked. I just can't yeah. believe this worked. This is so stupid. I don't know, because I feel like if I was Gloria and I thought of this, I'd be like, no, that's a bit too Scooby-Doo. It's too stupid. Like, Why that you... would never work. Brie would be too smart to climb that. If I was Brie, I would have just pushed down the ladder. I'm surprised Gloria didn't just, like, dig a pit and cover it, like, put a load of sticks, sharp sticks in it and cover it with leaves. <laughs> And she was just like, oh, this will work. And then she's just hidden behind the wall of the house, like watching Brie as she walks towards the pit. Very Tomb Raider. Very, like, Saturday evening cartoons for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were the smartest of the main cast. No, that's Lynette. Mm, clearly. Clearly. Oh. Anyway, we're now at the hospital, and the nurse says that she's lucky, as she only has a concussion. <laughs> Good. Orson says how lucky they are, and Andrew says, yeah, I bet. And when he asks what the attitude's all about, Andrew admits to have, having heard the whole conversation yesterday and tells him that he hasn't met bad Andrew yet, but there's a reason why Brie kicked him out onto the streets last year and that if he ever hurts his mum, then Orson will meet bad Andrew. I love Andrew. Like, this is growth, guys. The fact that he's grown so much to the point where he seems to care so deeply for his mother to the point where he's willing to bring back hit and run Andrew. He's literally willing to bring him back. And to be honest, I think Orson and Hit and Run Andrew would have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah. They'd probably bond. Andrew's like, I'll sleep with anyone I have to to get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> he then goes up to the nurse and tells her not to leave Orson alone in a room with Bree, as he's her husband and the reason why she's in the hospital in the first place. So if anything happens, the hospital is liable. He then says, bye dad, to Orson before doing a walkout. I didn't like that part of Andrew. Why? Because like, I get that he's protecting his mum, but to go up to a random nurse and tell her all of this and be like, you're liable if anything happens because I've told you this. Well, it's not fairness, really how it works, sweetie. No, but I did like this because he's heard the conversation and he's like, my mum keeps getting with bad men. Keep him away from her at all costs. No, I get the sentiment behind it, but the fact that he's just gone up to this nurse who's clearly just working her ass off and trying to help people and he's just there like keep her, him away from my mum and if my mum gets hurt because of him you're liable because I've told you and I was like no and that's not the way it works Andrew so Zach is still spying on Gabby and sees that she's finishing off a bottle of wine so he decides that now is the perfect time to make his move he goes up to the house and drops off a present and then Gabby opens the door she asks what he wants and he pretends to think she'd still be out on her date and says he wanted to drop off a present since he couldn't take her out. She opens the bag to find a mug <laughs> that says, World's Greatest Friend, which <laughs> she loves. <laughs> oh my God. I'm assuming because she's drunk. Probably. Oh, she is very drunk. She is very drunk. He asks how the date went, and she invites him in. <laughs> Girl needs to be careful here, because one wrong comment, and he goes from little Zach Young to, like, Zach Young model murderer. <laughs> That mug was awful. <laughs> yeah, it was a really bad mug. Especially considering she asked for a liquid soap dispenser. It's also just a little bit corny. Yeah. <laughs> You're the world's greatest friend. <laughs> yeah, but he's trying to solidify the fact that he knows they're only going to be friends. Yeah, anyway, she tells him what Luke said and Zach says how crazy the guy must have been and that she's only getting prettier with age. And Gabby says that it's a cute lie as every tick of the clock takes something away and she proceeds to take a little nap on Zach who tells her to take as long as she likes creepy. while stroking her hair. Creepy. Well creepy. What am I going to do when I'm not pretty anymore? <laughs> mood. <laughs> it's a total mood, Gabby. Zach, what are you doing? Honestly, Gabby's a fan favourite. What are you doing? He's um crossing boundaries, is what he's doing. Oh, yeah. 
He's he's kind of acting kind of like Joe from You. Yes. Yes, he is. He's been a little bit stalkery. Yeah. Ian finds Susan in the embalming room where she decided to run and hide from everyone. She apologizes for ruining Jane's funeral and he says that she didn't. And Susan cries saying that she hoped for that after today, she could have been a bigger part of his life. But now all of his friends and family are just going to think that she's that crazy lady at Jane's funeral. With all due respect, Lynn was the one that ruined Jane's funeral. 100%. Not Susan. He gets her off the floor and tells her he doesn't want to hide their relationship anymore and that he loves her and he wants to marry her. But before Susan lets him propose, she tells him that they should probably leave the room with all the corpses in it. And they decide to go out back to the other people. I just, oh my god, like, just, he proposes at a funeral of his dead wife around other dead people. That's just, a, I, I, that's gross. That's absolutely gross. I mean, the volume, the density of the men in this episode. Yeah. And <laughs> also, happening? Jane's family are upstairs. And yeah, Ian, like, it's fair, Ian's moved on or what have you. We have to respect that. But I'm sure Jane's parents don't really want to see or hear of Susan. Yeah, I do think it's nice that she's there to support him, but quite frankly, I don't think I would have invited her. No, I wouldn't have invited her. It's just a bit weird. Mm. It's just a bit awkward and weird. Especially when, you know, it's not just... Jane isn't just Ian's wife. Jane is a friend and a daughter and, you know, a sister and an aunt and all of those things, so... Her gravestone. To <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Um, So to invite your new girlfriend to the funeral of your dead wife without taking into consideration the feelings of your dead wife's family. I just think it's pretty selfish. Pretty rude. Yeah. But I'm also, I've not been in that situation, so I can't talk for how it might feel for Ian. Yeah, true. But you are right. She didn't ruin the funeral. Lynn did. No, Lynn absolutely ruined the funeral. Wasn't I mean, Lynn's Su- the one should, that called attention to it. Should Susan have made the funeral about herself from Lynn's perspective anyway, by saying, I'm the girlfriend, it's me, he's with me, back off. No, she should not have. She should have just kept her mouth shut because she was at a funeral and not said anything. But... Messy, Lynn. It was messy Susan as well. Oh, yeah. Like, Susan brought herself down to Lynn's level by actively engaging in that conversation with her. But Lynn was definitely the one that ruined the funeral. 100%. So Mike is having another one of his therapy sessions and he's getting lulled into one of the deep hypnotic hypnotic sleep things to remember. We're back in his memories and he walks into the kitchen to find the yellow gloves man again, but this time he remembers what happens after and Orson stands up. (gasps) So Orson stands up wearing his yellow gloves and he tells Mike that he's cleaning up and that he's Monique's boyfriend. Mike goes to finish the sink while Orson is spraying down the countertops and Orson insists that he has it all under control and gives Mike the money to cover what they owe him. Mike then goes to walk out and Orson grabs his wrench from the side saying, don't forget your wrench. (laughs) Ignore the blood. (laughs) Yeah. So Mike then wakes up, does a walkout and he goes over to the Hodges to find Orson. But Danielle tells him that they're at the hospital after Bree's fall. Gag, Mike remembers. He remembers. I mean, is it a shock that it was Orson? Not really. No, not really. But finally. Also, Danielle, the sass. Oh my God. She's at the hospital with my mom. She's fine, by the way. Thanks for asking. (laughs) I wanted to see Danielle after everything, but not without Julie smacking her. (laughs) No, I know. No, she deserves a slap. (laughs) But oh my God. Yeah. Mike's finally remembered. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah. It's only taken 14 episodes. Oof. We then cut straight to the hospital where a nurse says that Bree's doing fine and maybe Orson can go home and get some sleep. He laments over how there was a time when they were all happy, but he just can't remember it anymore. 
The episode then comes to its end as Mary Alice narrates about how recapturing the past is a tricky business, and she says that while most memories are simply a souvenir of a happier time, others can be quite deadly. And then, unusually, it doesn't go straight, it doesn't end right there, and Mm. we cut to a little bit more. While she narrates, we see Orson walk into his car, and Mike kind of appears behind him. Orson asks what brings him to the hospital, and Mike says that a hypnotherapist has been helping him with his memories, and when Orson asks how it's going, he says it's worked. He then chases Orson down the car park, who um, does a run out over Mm -hmm. some cars, (laughs) and when he catches up with Orson, they have a little bit of a fist fight against the wall before Orson kicks Mike away from him. Because that's all men can do, by the way, is fist fight as opposed to talk out things. Talk out? I'd fight. I'd fight him too. But he accidentally applies too much force and goes tumbling over the wall while Mike watches. Yeah. And we cut to a to be continued. Um, come on, just can't they just sit like, I just don't get why Mike can't just be like, yeah, I've been going to hypnotherapy, it worked. I'm like, come on, awesome, what the hell, girl? <laughs> right? Like, like, instead, we just lead with our fists. Like, guys, don't ever just talk. Well. <laughs> it made it worse. Like, they probably could have spoken about it if Austin hadn't have ran. But Mike was like, it's worked. And then Orson was just like... <laughs> so, what brings you to the hospital? <laughs> the awkward conversation. But but yes, that's the to be continued. Has Mike just murdered another person? Oh my god. Possibly. Because <laughs> the to be continued just cuts away with Orson just in the middle of the air. But again, how many accidental murders can Mike do? The first one was self-defense, and this one was, like, not legitimate murder. Like, Mike didn't kill with intent. I mean, he didn't push him over. No. He tumbled over because he kicked Mike off, and the force of it is what... Yeah. So... So... Another manslaughter. Mm. One for the tally, I guess. But we'll have to cut to next week, because there's a to-be-continued, so Orson is just going to hang in the middle of the air for a whole week. There, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Orson. (laughs) Sorry about it. And that's where the episode ends. So let's move on to our next segment where Joel is going to give us the gayest and straightest moment of the episode. So Joel, what's the gayest moment of the episode? My gayest moment goes to... It goes to Andrew for eavesdropping on the conversation with his mother and Orson. (laughs) Naturally. That's obviously a gay moment right there. He's trying to get all of the tea. And he's there, like, just hearing a little bit of Ray's voices. So he goes and presses his ear up. And then the minute he hears someone coming towards the door, he runs. And he's like, oh, I was just going to come along and see if you want a coffee. Yeah. (laughs) So bravo, Andrew, for, as the gay of Wisteria Lane, getting the gay award for gay moment. A gay musical called Gear. Fair enough. Andrew just is the moment this season anyway. He, he is. Andrew's wonderful this season. <laughs> it's refreshing to get a nice, respectable, chilled Andrew. An Andrew who just feels comfortable in his own skin by the look of it. Yeah. And who do you have for your straightest moment? My straightest moment goes to... <laughs> Tom, who needed to yell at Lynette in front of everyone to assert authority around his staff. Well, yeah. It just gives me straight vibes. It's very like Donald Trump or something. Donald Trump would do some shit like that. Yeah. Anyone who really needs to prove their masculinity. Yeah. So I just, I kind of felt like I'm surprised Tom didn't end it with a, I'm sorry, Lynette, you're fired. (laughs) I'm I'm surprised he didn't do that. Anyone who needs to orchestrate some kind of show to prove how manly they are or to prove that the boss is not a good boss. No. Like, you prove how good a boss you are by being a good boss. Yeah. Frankly. 
So we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. Yeah, hopefully this restaurant stays open forever. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so those are my awards. So now we move on to B section for best and worst parents. So B, who do you have for the best parent of the episode? My award for best parent of the episode goes to Lynette for not letting her boys eat ice cream before dinner. I think that was very sensible. I do think that was very sensible. Bravo, Lynette. And it's for probably... being the voice of reason and the mature parent. It's all I had as well. <laughs> yeah, well, there wasn't really much. <laughs> That's all I had. Yeah. Um, okay, and so who do you have for the worst parent of the episode? The award for... Worst parent of the episode... Goes to Tom for letting one of his boys have ice cream before dinner. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? Okay, okay. Bravo, Tom, for getting the worst parent award. And, like, the straightest moment. You're the straightest worst parent. Um, so, I guess it was slim pickings for your awards this episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really have anything else to go on. No. Except that one scene, which is why I was like, I really need to bring attention to this now, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> so, that was the end of the episode. And next week, we'll be doing Season 3, Episode 15, The Little Things You Do Together. But before that... Joel, where can people find us on socials? You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review, and you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. Yes. If you ever spot any Susan staring at a window moments, any clumsy Susan moments, anything fun in particular, your picks for best and worst outfits, feel yeah. free to send them in. Yeah. You may get on the show. It's happened before. Other than that, our email is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com. And also our artwork is done by Louis, who you can find on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign, where you'll find a link to his Etsy page. Yes, you can. So join us next week and we'll be back in your ear holes with season three, episode 15, The Little Things You Do Together. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.